Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue, where you take questions straight from you, the audience. Remember, if you have a question for us, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Today's show is sponsored by Innovator ETFs. Duncan is sporting a nice Innovator ETFs hat. Uh, he got some swag. We saw them at the Future Proof Festival, which we're going to get into a bit. So this week, Duncan, Ray Dalio said that the Fed raises rates to 4.5%, which is actually not out of the question, it seems like, with inflation coming higher. The stock market's going to tumble an additional 20%. Now, this is a very specific prediction, but I guess from the standpoint of discounted cash flow analysis, you figure, at least directionally, it kind of makes sense, right? You increase the hurdle rate, the interest rate, the present value of future cash flows, yada, 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 should be lower. So let's say you think there's a possibility Dalio's right here. Maybe inflation remains stubbornly high. The Fed has to hike rates to 4 or 5%. Again, not out of the realm of possibilities. That risk-free rate of 4 to 5% is pretty good competition for the stock market. But what if you think, I think it's a possibility or it's a probability, but not a certainty. What if he's wrong as well? Innovator ETFs has you covered. John, pull up the defined outcome ETF list for September. You can see they have these different buffers for losses, 9%, 15%, and then 30%, which is actually uh, after you're down the first five to down 35%. So let's, and the corresponding caps for those on the upside are 24, 17 and change, and a little over 14. So let's say you want some more certainty around the Ray Dalio scenario without simply shorting the market, because I don't think it makes sense to do extremes like that if, if you really think he's right, right? So maybe you look at the 15% buffer, which protects you against the first 15% of losses, but also gives you almost 18% on the upside in the event that Dalio's prediction is wrong, which could be, you never know. I, I, so I'm never a fan of going to the extremes. So I think they're defined outcome strategies give you a range of outcomes that you know in advance, but you don't doesn't necessarily pigeonhole you into making a specific directional bet one way or the other. If you're wrong, you still have a range in either direction because you have that protection. To learn more, go to innovatoretfs.com. Uh, so Duncan and I just returned from beautiful Huntington Beach, California for our future press, uh, future fest. What did I say? Future, future proof. Future proof. <laughs> yeah. One of those. Yeah. Uh, we want to thanks, thanks to all the compound viewers for coming out. I know we have, we have Cliff Peebles here in the, uh, in the chat. Got to meet some people in person. We did a live Animal Spirits and a live Compound. We'll probably share some more thoughts on Animal Spirits next week about everything that happened there. But it was great to see so many people show up in person. We've never done one like that in person before, right? Duncan, a live show. Yeah. I know you were worried about the audio because it was very windy there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, set up, we set up our podcast mics and uh, everything came out pretty well, all things considered. Yeah. And if anyone listening has a little FOMO about not going, maybe next year we can do a live version of the show. Uh, with all the questions coming, but we did already actually pre-announce dates that we're going to do it again next September. It was fun. And because everyone was so busy, we had a lot of people, we had almost 40 people from Ritholtz Wealth there. No, no expert guest host today. Duncan and I are doing it together. It's just us. Everyone works so hard. We're doing it solo. We emptied out the inbox and, uh, Right. Let's do it, right? It's also it's why you have that old mic. So I forgot to give Ben back his mic. So um so he'll have he'll have his regular mic back next week. But uh yeah. It's like the it's like our flu game here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Let's do it. Um okay. So up first today. Also my voice is still not totally back, but you know, I think it's it'll work. It'll have to work. Okay. Up first we have a question from Colin. I'm a 29-year-old living in New York City paying high rent prices and cost of living expenses. I recently graduated from a two-year master's program, which set me back financially, but I graduated with a job that almost doubled my income prior to grad school, currently $150,000. Even with this high income, my high expenses and debt have me feeling behind my peers who didn't take a two-year break from the workforce. I see my friends in the suburbs buying houses while I have practically nothing in savings. I want to avoid becoming a person who only starts to experience financial relief when my in income increases 
uh, what are some tips for a high income earner in a high cost of living scenario who can only save 10% of post-tax income to avoid becoming another rat in the rat race? Is the rat race that bad? I don't, I, you know, I was just on the subway. It's, you know, it's, it's the rat race, right? Okay. All right. Duncan's making, all right. Making the case of the rat race. All right. So Duncan, I watched Eyes Wide Shut recently. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman movie. Never seen that one. All right. I love Kubrick though. So do I need to see it? Kubrick. If you love him, you might want to see it. it. It was definitely more of a film than a movie. It was one of the few Tom Cruise movies I haven't seen, and I thought it was just okay. It was, it didn't like blow me away. But in it, in the movie, he plays a doctor, which is kind of an odd role for Tom Cruise. But he has this like enormous apartment. I think it's in like 1999. He has this enormous apartment. At the beginning of the movie, they go to a a doctor friend of his who has this just palatial penthouse condo. I mean, today this is like a fifty million dollar dollar place, and it just struck me that like in the 80s and 90s. Doctors and I guess to a lesser extent lawyers were seen as the like these most glamorous professions. Like that's how you got wealthy. Because if that movie was remade today, he would be like a hedge fund manager or a CEO or a tech company of have a tech company or something like that. Um, so what does it have to do with anything? Uh, this question made me think of doctors. So I was actually speaking to a financial advisor this week who said that he focuses on doctors. His his practice works with young doctors, and he mentioned how it's a unique financial situation because as a doctor you go to school for what is it twenty three years in total or 22 years or something. And then you go to your residency and you don't make a lot of money. And then, so you come out of your residency, not making a lot of money. You have six figures of student loans, but then finally, once you become a doctor, then you're making real money. You're making, you know, high six figures or something. And that seems kind of similar to Colin's situation here where he put things off. He didn't make a lot of money for a couple of years, but then he immediately took a huge leap forward in his income. So he fell behind, but now he has to play catch up. And I think that's hard to do because if you sort of set off that delayed gratification and now you're making more money, you probably want to spend it right away because for a couple of years there. But I think if, if he wants to avoid falling behind even further than his friends, uh, I think what you do is you, you learn how to live like a student for two years without a job. I think maybe if, maybe you probably want to keep living like a student for a little while. Give yourself a little cost of living raise, but maybe keep that baseline low. Because I think if you if you initially just start spending all the money you make, going back is going to be even harder. So you just lived on a low income for a couple of years. It shouldn't be that much harder to do it, you know, for a little bit longer. So I think setting that baseline to your future income is, is pretty good. You just don't don't want to overdo it. And if you can't continue to live like a student, unfortunately, you're probably gonna have to move. Right? I know people don't want to hear this, but if there's there's basically like three legs for the personal finance stool, right? You can spend less, you can earn more, or you can change your situation. And and so those are kind of the things here. And luckily, he did find a way to to earn more. I think it's it's glaringly obvious that like making more money makes it easier to save more. But the fact that he put two years off and it doubles income, it's obviously a worthwhile investment. But I think if you're in a high cost of living area and the money you're making allows you to save a certain percentage of your income you're going to have to figure out your spending or, your, or, or where you live, basically, right? Unfortunately. Yeah, it's hard it, to save in New York. It also brings up the, the good question of what high income means, right? Because it is so, it's so relative. It's relative. Yeah, yeah to, your, to your cost of living. But, I mean, but doubling your income, obviously, again, it probably hurt for those two years. I wouldn't worry so much about falling behind your peers because, obviously, that, that investment was worth it for you because you're, that you're, making, you're earning it back fairly quickly. But, uh, unfortunately, that there's, there's not many easy options besides besides living like you were living like a student for a while. Right. Like that's a good way to play catch up. 
All right, let's do another one. Uh, okay, so up next we have a question from Matthew who writes, I'm a 29-year-old with about $330,000 saved, all of it in brokerages or IRAs. Currently I'm managing my own portfolio, all in individual stocks and cash. I feel like I do a decent job uh, picking long-term businesses. I don't panic, buy or sell, and I, I've, held on, uh, I've held my own during the recent downturn. However, I know that by now that the right move is for the majority of my portfolio to be in low-cost index funds with maybe a bit to play with. Frankly, I just enjoy investing in stocks, but I know chances to outperform the market in the long term are low. Question is, I found a financial advisor offering a 1.2% annual fee on my holdings. I do not currently have a home or really any complicated assets or financial plans. I just want to accumulate. Is an advisor for 1.2% worth it, or at my age is simply finding low-cost index funds the right move? We get a, this question a lot. Yeah, do I a need a financial one. advisor? And I, I, I work in wealth management, so I'm kind of biased, but I've interacted with enough investors over the years to know that it's not for everyone. Not everyone needs a financial advisor, right? Some people are prone to making emotional mistakes as an investor, and they, they need an advisor for that to help them make better decisions. A lot of people have complicated situations because of a life event or just their personal circumstances. They might need an advisor. Some people are just really busy and prefer to outsource. They outsource a lot of things in their life, and they don't want to carry the load themselves, so they just lean on experts. But one of them is, for a lot of people, especially if they've been a DIY investor their whole life, and then they're getting close to retirement, there's that hit by a busk risk where if something happens to me, what's going to happen to my spouse or my family, and I want an advisor to, to be there to take the place. We, we talked to one guy once who had millions of dollars and said, I, I'm perfectly comfortable managing the money myself. I like doing it, but I have something in our estate plan that says, if I die tomorrow, my wife is going to call over Hills Wealth Management. So it's like a, it's like a backup <laughs> plan. Uh, and then I think when the, when the stakes become too high and you just you're worried about making a huge mistake, that that. But the people who don't need an advisor are the people who can who have put in the work, who pay attention to the stuff, and just feel comfortable doing it themselves. Some people just find enjoyment out of it. And then there's a lot of the majority of young people who are simply looking to save and invest, like this person, probably doesn't need an advisor, especially if if it sounds like this is something this person likes to do. They already sort of have it figured out where they they're in individual stocks and they know they have to go to index funds and they should. They haven't made the the switch yet. Do you need a, to pay an advisor over 1% to put in index funds? No, just build it up in your 401k or IRA. Uh, I don't, if you don't have behavioral problems and you can stick with a long-term investment plan and you're just accumulating assets and you're not in a complicated situation, like the, I mean, most people come to a financial advisor thinking, I need help with my portfolio. I need investment management. I need someone to do asset allocation. That, that stuff is part of it. But financial planning is far more meaningful for the vast majority of the population. You know, we're talking comprehensive financial planning, tax planning, insurance planning, yeah, it's estate holistic. planning. And, yeah, it's holistic. It's it's not only asset allocation, but asset location and withdrawal strategies and ongoing planning. It's all this other stuff too, that investment is a piece of it, but it's not the whole thing. So if, if you're just in the accumulation phase, I don't think you need to pay an advisor. No. And you could, I mean, you could, you could pay for like an hourly financial planner to create a financial plan for you if you really need that but I don't think that you need to be paying an ongoing asset management fee to people. A key thing they said there is that they enjoy it, right? For most people, I don't think most people, they said they're in individual stocks. I don't think most people want to be like worrying about like what an individual stock does day in, day out, that kind of thing. But but if you enjoy it, then I, you know, I guess that, uh, that takes some again, of that pressure the, off. We've had this conversation too about getting to a place where you're comfortable where if you need to scratch that itch and have 10, 20, 30% of your portfolio in individual stocks because you enjoy it, and then the rest on autopilot and index funds or ETFs, just figure out what that right balance is. Yeah. Good All right, advice. let's do it. One more. Okay, Danny writes, 
I'm 39 years old and have been running into more and more instances of this type of behavior from my parents and their friends. They go down a YouTube rabbit hole and are conned out of money, whether it be for gold coins or to cancel phantom subscriptions. How do we talk our parents, uh, talk to our parents about being conned out of money? It's kind of funny because our parents always told us growing up that it was like video games and TV and movies were ruining our brain. And unfortunately, it's probably like the internet and social media that, that came for them. And I honestly don't blame them because like the baby boomer generation especially didn't have a lot of technology growing up. And so I think they actually are easier to con. So I, I wrote a whole book about this called Don't Fall For It, A Short History of Financial Scams. And the crazy thing to me is that technology evolves over time, but like people were still doing the same scams in like the 1600s as they are now. It's just it's just a different rapper. So there's this old joke about a little boy who comes down on Christmas morning and he notices all around the Christmas tree, just it's filled with horse excrement everywhere, just horse poop, horse poop all over the place. And his parents see him and he starts jumping up and down for joy. And his parents say, what's wrong with you? There's, there's horse manure everywhere. And the boy says, with this much horse shit, there has to be a pony somewhere, right? And that's, that's financial fraud. It just, it has to be true, <laughs> right? There was, a, there was a, in my book, there was this woman, and I think she was a boomer, unfortunately. And Jason Statham, a person who was posing as Jason Statham in between Fast and Furious movies, said to her, hey, I'm a little short on cash because I'm paycheck to paycheck between movies. Just front me a couple hundred thousand dollars to make it. And this woman thought she was friends with Jason Statham. You're, you're going to be shocked, but it, it wasn't. Like, it, and that kind of stuff. So it's the, one of the hard parts is a lot of people don't want to talk about this if it happens. And so I looked for a good estimate of like how, often, how much money is being scammed from people in a given year. And every study I found said, whatever money, whatever estimate we have, Multiply it by two or three because the number of people who get scammed then don't say anything because they're embarrassed right. is enormous. So there was a there was a a study I looked at in the book, and they they look at two groups of people. One group had gone through; they'd been the victim of financial fraud, and they admitted it. Another group who wasn't the victim of financial fraud, and they gave them these this test, and it was like a eight question test that was fairly in depth, all about the markets and investing and stocks and your finances. And they found the average score among victims of fraud was like 60%, which sounds bad, but it was actually way higher than the non-fraud victims. The people who hadn't been a victim of a fraud were like two out of eight. And so what they figured was like the people who were victims of fraud were actually more informed about investments than those who weren't. But the, the, the conclusion of the study was like everyone gets taken, but it's the most sophisticated investors who get taken the most. And that's because they're, they're either overconfident, but also because they have the target on their back, right? Right. Older people, the baby boomers especially, they have the most money. So they have the target on their back. That's, that's why people go after them. So I did this thing where I looked at six signs of financial fraud in the book. One of them was, this is the Madoff thing, when the investment manager takes custody of your assets. That was like the biggest, that should have been the biggest red flag for Bernie Madoff people. He was not only managing the money, but also holding onto it for people. That made it easier for, to falsify uh, the okay. records and stuff. I think that the biggest one is, especially for these smaller ones that this person is talking about going down like a rabbit hole in the internet, when there's like an aura of exclusivity in the pitch. So it's like, this is especially tempting for the wealthy people because they want to think like, well, that's not available to other people. For me, if there's this like secret door that I can go through. And I think scammers often use uh, time as a sales tactic too. Like if you don't act now, you're going to miss out. So people want to believe like they have to do it now. I think anytime it's too complicated to understand that that's a good red flag. If it sounds too good to be true, when the promise returns are ridiculously high, that was, I think Charles Ponzi, the original Ponzi scheme, he was, he was uh, offering like 40% a month. Not and bad. Like, 
Yeah. The risk-free rate at the time was like 5%, not too far from now. And then when they tell you exactly what you want to hear. So I think the simple one to tell your parents, so I've heard a few people now, Nick Majulia wrote about this a few months ago, and I actually heard about this someone personally. Uh, with remote work being a thing, people would contact someone on LinkedIn and say, hey, I've got a job for you, and go through like a back-and-forth interview process all on the internet. And then say, okay, job is yours. Give me your social security number, your bank account number. And then you, they looked into it, and there's no job there. People are just scamming them, right? Right, I've heard of and, that. And, yeah. So I think some simple ones to tell your parents, you never give out information like that over the internet, especially. Uh, the other one, never click on a link that an email sends you to reset a password. Right. right. Or a text. That one always gets, yeah, anytime, click on this. Go to the actual website yourself if you want to reset something. Don't click on it yourself. Otherwise, I, I think just you have to kind of prepare them a little bit and tell them that people are looking to get you in this stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you have a question, ask me before you do something. You don't need to be in a rush to do anything, especially when it comes to your finances. Yeah, it's sad because you don't want to make people super jaded and you know untrusting yeah. of everyone. But but yeah, I mean, it really has gotten pretty out of hand. I but I get is- texts all the time now. The the latest one that I've heard a lot about is you know, you, you, uh, USPS or UPS couldn't deliver your package. And so you might actually be expecting a package. And so you click the link and it's a scam. Sometimes it's not, you know? And so it's, it's one of those things where now it's like, I never click any of them because I just yeah, assume just it's a scam. Yes. Don't click the links. That's yeah. a, yeah. I remember, remember when the internet first came out, no one ever wanted to give their credit card information. Yeah. And now <laughs> you become more trusting of it. And now you think everything's going to be fine and you have to be a little more discerning. Right. And, Send an email. I'll send your parents a copy of this book. Maybe that'll help. Yeah. Free copy. Coming your way. All right, let's do another one. Okay. Oh, and for any boomers who are, like, offended by any of that, um, you know, it's not just you, first of all, but second of all, you can leave your best, like, Gen Z and millennial jokes in the chat, and um, and we'll take a look at some of those. Yes, but it, it is, the, the whole point, although, is everyone gets gets scammed. I right. mean, think yeah. about who's getting scammed on the NFT crypto stuff. Guess what? It's right. young people. That's well, not that's, boomers. That's like what you just said, too, right? You can't get scammed on an NFT you know, project unless you know what an NFT is. Right, you're probably not going to put money into it unless you actually know what it is. So it's not people who don't know anything. It's people who actually know know something that often gets scammed. But, yeah, and they're overconfident. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so up next we have a question from Jared. My wife bought some land in New Zealand a few years before we met with vague ideas of building building a house. Turns out its value has appreciated by four or five times. So she asked me if she should sell it while prices are high. We don't really need the money for anything, so I thought the tax burden sounds like a hassle, and I don't know if the money would be better off in stocks. One wrinkle is that she has stage four lung cancer and probably only has a few years. So it's unlikely she'll ever build on it. Should she just sell it? You know, we, we get a lot of these emails and I actually thank people for sharing this kind of stuff because obviously it can't be easy to ask this kind of thing. And yeah. I can't even imagine what it's like to go yeah, through. So one. there's this guy, George Kinder is his name. He's generally known as like the father of financial life planning. And his, his whole thing was, it's not financial planning, you're planning your life. And he, he does this thing where he asks three questions. This is pretty well known in like the financial advisor community. So he, he is asking these questions to get people to dig deeper into their goals when they're creating their financial plans. So the first one is like, imagine you're financially secure both now and in the future. Like, how would that change your life? What would you do differently? Second question is, and, and this is kind of a progressive set of questions. Second question is, your doctor tells you you have five to 10 years left to live. You won't feel sick ever, but you won't know exactly when you're going to go. Just sometime in the next five to 10 years, and then the question is, how would this change your life and what, what you do with it? And then the third one is, drilling down even more, now the doctor tells you you have one day left to live. What are your biggest regrets? What do you wish you, you, wish you would have done? What would you have done differently? 
And he uses this as a framework to help people kind of drill down to their goals and dreams and like get better. Now, for most people, these questions are theoretical in nature. For Jared and his wife, who's asking this question, this is, this is real life. And now it sounds like they are financially secure, so that number one is kind of checked off. And wife maybe only has a few years to live, so it's like, now what? So I could offer you a breakdown of the pros and cons between owning land or owning stocks or the timing of this or anything else. But really, I don't think finances should be the priority here. So we, uh, I introduced a financial advisor named Joe McLean this week at the Future Proof Festival, and he manages money for professional athletes. And they asked him, how, how do you go about setting a financial plan and, and allocating their assets when they have millions of dollars? He said, well, one of them is like the safety security bucket, one of them is the growth bucket, and one of them is the dream bucket. And he said when he lays it out like this, of course, the first one everyone wants to go to is the dream bucket. And so I think that's probably, that's probably where you want to start here with the understanding that we don't know the rest of your financial circumstances. That's where I would start too is, is, I don't know, maybe your wife wants to build a house in New Zealand and enjoy her last few years. Maybe you want to cash out and take some amazing vacations together or maybe make her feel better to like give the money away or make your financial standing more secure before she goes. So uh, it's, it's hard to say. Obviously, this has got to be extremely difficult with that hanging over you and it can be an easy conversation to have. But maybe having a talk about your wife's dreams and what she wants to get out of it and using that framework uh, might be a good place to start in terms of figuring out what to do next with that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's what I, I was thinking too is, yeah, I mean, maybe something, something she would really like to do with that money. Um, you know, otherwise, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's not worth the hassle, but yeah. Yeah. Now, now is the time to not, it's it, like throw the financial uh, out of it, the equation and just think about like, what would I actually do with this money if I didn't have a lot of time? And, and obviously that's the situation they're dealing with. All right. One more question. Okay. Last but not least, we have a question from Michael. My wife and I are in our early 30s and have our first kid arriving in December. I have about $32,000 left in student loan debt, but they are refinanced at great rates, $5,200 at 3.5% and $27,600 at 3%. Both are fixed rate and we pay a little over minimum payment, $500 a month to the $5,000 loan and $900 a month to the $27,000 loan. I've always thought anything under 3% is basically free money and usually wouldn't think to pay it early, but for some reason, student debt really annoys me, probably because we've been paying for a decade. We built up a decent emergency fund by putting $1,000 a month into it. However, now that it's a decent figure, I plan to only contribute $500 a month. Does it make sense to use that extra $500 that would normally be going to our emergency fund to pay down student debt? Or would you invest any extra money and assume long-term the investments will outperform the interest rates on the loans? What's the gif of the little girl where she's, why not both, right? <laughs> I don't think these decisions have to be all or nothing. I agree that there should be no hurry with rates that low. My student loans were sub 3%. So I use the entire 15-year period to pay them off. But I'm not one of those people who's totally averse to holding debt. Like, it doesn't bother me, especially if the rates are so low. For others, it doesn't even matter what the rates are. They just can't take it. And so to maybe, put it in perspective, I think the average, the average rate is like 6%, right? Yeah, so, so these, these people obviously good. have a very good loan rate right now. Uh, the other good thing is that these decisions don't have to be set in stone. It can tinker a little bit. Maybe try to split the difference for a year, put half in your student loans and half of it is in savings or investing. Obviously, if you've got a new child on the way, maybe giving yourself a little buffer and keeping that emergency fund higher is probably going to be helpful. Then at the end of the year, you can check your student loan balance after making some extra payments and check your investments from where they are and decide like which one of these made me feel better, which one of them has helped my financial position better. And, and I think you can kind of change and you can tinker a little bit and see. 
And I think you can also compare rates as well. Who knows? If the Fed keeps raising interest rates, you could have a rate on your savings account that's higher than this 3% loan, right? Like six-month, one-year, two-year treasury bills right now are higher than my mortgage rate. Not, not to brag. Actually, very much to brag. But it's possible that could... So you could be looking at that rate, and it's going to look even better maybe three, six, nine months from now, where you go, I really don't want to change, especially with inflation being so high. So from a financial perspective... Holding that low, low rate debt on a real basis, it's negative right now, big time, right? We're talking negative five percent or something. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's very appealing. So, I wouldn't be in a hurry to pay that from a financial perspective. I understand from a mental psychological perspective, it feels like it's just hanging over you. But that, that's almost more of an asset than a liability now, which is like right. I'm, I'm in no rush to pay my mortgage off, and if I could take out more debt at that 3% rate right now, I probably would, right? So yeah, I, I'd be in no hurry. But again, you can you can always split the difference and then see how it goes for a little while. Yeah. No, that sounds sounds like good advice. Yeah, I'm I'm jealous that that's a very good interest rate. But yeah, yeah. if you refinance you I guess uh for people who are working in public service, that kind of thing, you lose eligibility to do the 10 years where you know you get your loans paid off or whatever that's called. Um yeah. PSLA. And if this person actually if if they're part of the thing that got the ten thousand dollars off, you know they just have some savings there too, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, oh, I finally got my chart on shirt here. I know. Finally came in the mail. So remember, if you want one of these, we we were people wearing them out at Future Proof, Duncan and John and Josh, I think, and Michael. Uh, I don't shop dot com. Uh, again, thanks everyone for coming out and checking it out. John, did you throw up that picture yet from from Future Proof? Check that out. Look at that. We had a, that's our live podcast. Look at those booth. shirts. Yeah, we had a lot of people in the crowd with Hawaiian shirts. We appreciate that. Uh, Mike, if you're listening in podcast form, leave us a review. Give us a five-star rating. If you're on YouTube, leave a comment below. Leave a question. Uh, subscribe. Idontshop.com for Compound Merch. Keep those questions and comments coming. If you have something to ask us, ask the compound show at gmail.com. We'll be here next week, and we'll bring a guest host next week. But uh, we'll see you then. See ya. podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today.